Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. What the truth? You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. Hey everyone, welcome into the podcast. We have a... Uh... A special guest today as we go through the book of Revelation, and we're going to spend a lot of time in there. We're going to bring a lot of guests on. You know, we periodically bring on guests to help give just general overviews, people who are uh, scholars or experts in this realm. So, Rob, you have a, a friend of yours coming on, a colleague coming on. So, why don't you give uh, his intro? Well, it's a privilege to call Mark a friend. Dr. Mark Wilson is the founder and director of the Asia Minor Research Center in Antalya, uh, Turkey, the country where he and his wife Dindi have lived since 2004. Mark received his doctorate in literature and philosophy in New Testament at the University of South Africa, where he's also a research fellow. He's a professor extraordinary of New Testament at Stellenbosch University. He's a member of many academic societies, including the Society of Biblical Literature, the Evangelical Theological Society, where Mark and I first met up as on the committee for the Book of Revelation Study Group for the Evangelical Theological Society, and also the American Society of Overseas Research. Mark is the author of numerous books and articles, including Biblical Turkey, Victory Through the Lamb, and the Spirit Said Go. His particular research interests are the Book of Acts and the Book of Revelation. He regularly leads tours in the Eastern Mediterranean. Mark is just an expert on the seven churches. I'm just going to insert this into your, into your bio, Mark. Mark is an expert on the seven churches. He lives in Turkey, and this is what he does. So, so he and his wife, Dindi, have been married for 49 years. They have four adult children and four grandsons and four granddaughters. So Mark, welcome. Oh, glad to be with you. Thank you for being with us. So, Mark, let's just begin by having us, you tell us a little bit more about your story uh, and even how it is that you've kind of lived in Turkey and, and maybe about the work that you do there in Turkey. And we'll we'll give a plug about your tours and stuff like that at the end of the show. Sure. Well, I'd never been out of the uh, country, got a late start with my education. And uh, in the early uh, 90s, our church in Virginia Beach, Virginia, where we were living, got interested in Turkey. And uh, they were doing a small trip to Western Turkey in 1992. And so I joined that. And for me, it was really a life-changing trip mm -hmm. because I was just beginning my own doctoral study at uh, UNISA uh, on the Book of Revelation, the seven churches. Uh, and we did a tour of all the churches and uh, returned home. And uh, it was just uh, an eye-opening uh, time for me. Uh, 93, I began my own doctoral program and then uh, actually led my first tour over here to Turkey in 94 and 95 and uh, just started coming back regularly. After finishing my doctorate, I taught for four years uh, in New Testament uh, program at Oral Roberts University, began taking some student groups over from there. Uh, then uh, my wife was saying, well, you go to Turkey all the time. Maybe we should think about moving over there. <laughs> and so uh, we moved back to Virginia Beach, reconnected with our church there again. And in 2004, they uh, sent us over here. Uh, in 2001, we had spent four months in Turkey, kind of traveling around, uh, spying out the land, and uh, decided that uh, we were going to first settle in Izmir, which is biblical Smyrna. We lived there for six years. Uh, then we're in Istanbul almost a year. And then uh, in 2011, we moved down here to Antalya. And so we've been here since. Wonderful, wonderful. Hey, I'm just curious, what is it like to be a Christian living in Turkey? This isn't the point of the conversation. We're going to get into the text, I promise. <laughs> but uh, it's just it's just fascinating to hear of a uh, an American, uh, you know, white American Christian living in Turkey. That's got to be, there's got to be a lot of challenges. Well, yeah. Turkey, with a population of over 80 million people, has less than one-tenth of one percent uh, who are Christians in the country. 
and this comprises Orthodox, Catholic, and Protestants. So there's a very small uh, Turkish-believing uh, church, maybe 10,000 people, and then uh, there are a number of uh, expats. This is the type of international church that we attend, uh, English-speaking congregation as well. So we are very much in the minority here. Uh, laws uh, here are not very amenable for Christians, mm. uh, so it makes it challenging to gather and to worship. Okay. That seems like a whole podcast in itself that I'd love to get into, yeah, but we're really. going to get into the text, but interesting yeah, stuff. Is, and it's a little bit politically loaded to talk about it um, uh, publicly, too. I can imagine. So can we'll imagine. have an interview with you and have your name changed and, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. and your identity. My face blotted out. Right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're, we're a... The covering yeah, do, over my hand. Yeah, do the, the, the shadow. Uh, we have a special like, guest today, uh, Joseph yeah. Krieger. <laughs> Joseph Krieger. Nice. Very good. Well, hey, let's get into the text. One one thing that we do when we uh, bring on guests is uh, we usually like to ask them a big picture question. Like, like you know, and every scholar is going to have their own bent in terms of how they view the big picture in a sense, maybe in, in how they see that aspect of it. Um, what are you seeing as the central theme or some of the central themes in Revelation? Uh, soon after I finished my doctorate, I was invited to contribute a uh, commentary on Revelation for the Zondervan Bible background mm -hmm. commentary. Which is fantastic, and, a great it, resource. It is, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. it was a, a basic introduction, and yeah, it was a time for me to really delve into the text. And, you know, I really haven't changed my view, uh, you know, over all these years after I published that. And uh, at the beginning of the uh, commentary, I, I talk about four particular themes that I found uh, in Revelation. So the first of these is God ruling from his divine throne yeah. is the sovereign Lord of history. Amen. Uh, second theme, Jesus as the sacrificial lamb yeah. is victorious over Satan and the world. Amen. Third one, uh, the world system typified by Babylon and the two beasts is to po opposed to God and his people. Yep. And then the final theme is the saints who overcome will receive eternal rewards in the new heaven and the new earth. So uh, that kind of summarizes for me what I think the whole message of Revelation is about. Which, by the way, means I don't have to write my commentary because I think you just said it <laughs> just all. Just by March. Darn it. <laughs> I got all this work done and now it's like no good. It's useless. So I was footnote Mark Wilson said all this earlier, but I'm just reiterating because I wanted to publish my own book. <laughs> So, uh, great. Hey, Mark, when we read the letters of Paul and the epistles of the New Testament, we usually discuss like the background, the authorship, the data writing, um, maybe the city's location, like Corinth is kind of an important location for what's going on there in the city of Corinth and letter, the letters to, to the Corinthians, and maybe the historical context of the city and the geopolitical context of the Roman world, whatever it might be. So how much of this is important when it comes to understanding the seven messages in the in Revelation chapters two and three? And maybe can you give us a few examples to kind of get started? Well, I think it's extremely important to, to understanding the situation in, in the Roman province of Asia. So I'm, I make that point because you often hear people talk about the, uh, the churches in Asia Minor. Well, Asia Minor is a much broader geographical territory uh, up to the Euphrates River. And the, uh, the the seven churches are actually located in the province of Asia. So right. I just kind of make that uh, point yeah. there. Which is a province and, in the west coast of modern-day Turkey, right? It's a exactly. Roman province in the west coast of modern-day Turkey. Yeah, thank exactly. you. Exactly. And so uh, these seven cities, two of them are actually quite minor uh, of these. And uh, they're all situated uh, along a road that the first Roman governor, um, and yes, Aquilius, built uh, after... Uh, Rome brought Asia into the uh, empire about 129 BC. 
And so uh, there's a, a circuit that the messenger is making uh, from uh, Patmos, if uh, we're correct in thinking that he's with John on the island there, who is an exile. And uh, each of these cities has their own very distinct character. And so uh, learning about the cities, uh, learning about the geography uh, and the various uh, civic and uh, religious institutions are, I think, a very important background to understanding these uh, seven prophetic messages. So you're saying that we should all go on one of your trips is what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, well, it's life changing. If we were to just maybe jump around a little bit and ask, you know, just getting the, the background of some of the churches, the seven churches that are uh, referenced in the seven messages, the Laodicean church, this is going to be backing up to the, the end of uh, the sequence of churches. In verse 17, it, it, John writes that uh, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind and naked. What is the background of the Laodicean church? Is this a church that's just going to be like communally? Is this this uh, community going to be wealthy? Are they going to have a lot anyway? What? How would we interpret this from a background standpoint? Uh, I think most of these churches are, are going to have a certain uh, a wealth uh, because they're uh, you know strategically situated. At least three on the, the west coast, the port cities. Uh, but Laodicea being the junction of this, uh, these two roads, one leading from Pergamum, one leading from Ephesus, and they were on this road that ran all the way to uh, Antioch and Syria. So uh, their, their uh, just uh, geographic situation was, was important for commerce passing uh, east and west and then uh, linking from uh, north to south as well. Uh, it was a very fertile uh, region uh, there noted for its textiles and, and uh, even in antiquity. So if you go to the modern city of Denizli, which is at the same location, that is a very prosperous city. So mm. the, this uh, sort of prosperity has survived uh, in the region. Uh, and so uh, I think this background uh, is, is very important. And one of the, the uh, this is an earthquake zone. So, mm. you know, uh, we just recently had a major earthquake in uh, southeastern Turkey. Well, even in the ancient world, uh, these cities in AD 17, uh, particularly Sardis and Philadelphia, were uh, heavily damaged. Uh, AD 60, uh, Laodicea was almost totally flattened. And uh, uh, the Roman historians note uh, this very uh, interesting fact that the Laodiceans told Rome, we're going to rebuild uh, out of our own resources. And so it's just an indication of their wealth and sort of an attitude that they had. I mean, what what city or, or uh, doesn't want help from the federal government? Yeah, right, <laughs> right, know. right. Everybody want, wants that, but the Laodiceans say, no, we can do it on our own. Wow. What were some of the sources behind the wealth besides the fact that it's located with commerce? Wasn't there some things in the city of Laodicea, Laodicea that contributed to its wealth also? Well, with its neighboring cities of uh, Colossa and Hierapolis, they'd had a lot of exports to Rome, uh, certain uh, types of uh, clothing and garments, uh, other types of fruit. Olive oil is coming from this area. Wine is even uh, produced there and still produced in the area. So between their agricultural products and uh, and some of the banking, it was a noted banking center too. So it had a lot of things going for them, at least on the financial front. Excellent. Right, so staying in the church in, in Laodicea here, in chapter 3, verse 15, it says, I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. Now, that's been subject to a lot of interpretations here, Mark. Can you help us kind of understand what's going on there, what it means? 
Well, it's interesting that the word water is not used there. Right. And uh, in 1957, there's two British scholars who visited Laodicea and they came up with a uh, hypothesis for interpreting this that basically was talking about the inferior water that Laodicea had lay behind uh, this uh, metaphor, a temperature metaphor that we have here. And so that kind of expanded and grew to be sort of the prevailing view in New Testament scholarship about how to, to view this metaphor uh, with the idea that uh, there was some warm springs that Laodicea got its water from south of the city, uh, that it had a lot of calcium carbonate in it as well. And uh, so there was a lot of problems with the water system. And this is you know, why Jesus was threatening to spit or vomit them out. It's a very strong word there right, in, yeah, in the yeah. Greek text, you know. And, uh, but uh, most of these suggestions came forth before excavations at Laodicea mm. actually began uh, around 2003. And the excavators there have published several articles now. And, and the problem, of course, is that they are in Turkish. Mm. So English uh, scholars uh, are, are challenged to be able to use this uh, uh, scholarship, but showing that uh, Laodicea had a water system just like everybody else uh, in the ancient world, just like Colossae, uh, just like Hierapolis, uh, Ephesus, and Smyrna. And so uh, all these ideas of some sort of a deficient water system really uh, doesn't hold water, this particular interpretation. Forget so the plan. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah, you uh, then you if you debunk one hypothesis, what what do you put in its place? And so this has kind of been a research interest right now. And the only other uh, really public structure that we have in all of the cities that we had in Laodicea too that had these three uh, temperatures: hot, cold, lukewarm, was the Roman bathhouses. Mm. And so they're famously known for their cold uh, area, the frigidarium, then the tepidarium and the caldarium. So when you come over and do a tour over here, you're going to go into a Roman bathhouse and see these three sections. And so uh, this is my idea of, of what the image uh, is uh, uh, talking about here. The bathhouses uh, were noted for their luxury. They had the beautiful marble and mosaics and some of the most luxurious structures that were in these ancient cities. Uh, the the decrying of luxury is a part of the the uh, uh, the letter here as well. The the wealth that the uh, Laodiceans and the, and they were showing it in these beautiful bathhouses that they had. It was also a place where uh, people went to snag a, a dinner invitation <laughs> as they're sitting there in the baths in the afternoon. And so there, there's a, a dining uh, motif in the letter as well. And so I think this is a, a possible interpretation then of of what the, this temperature metaphor is all about. It's the lukewarm room that in, in the bathhouse uh, that really has no value. You don't mm. go there for that. You go to the cold room, you go to the hot room, but not to the lukewarm room. Okay. So it has nothing to do with the fact that Jesus wants either cold against him or hot for him, uh, but not <laughs> Worst lukewarm. Worst sermon illustration ever. <laughs> oh my God. Hot's good, warm, uh, cold's good, but lukewarm, yuck. Okay, very good. Hey everyone, we want to thank you for joining us on today's podcast. And we want to remind you that everything we provide at Determined Truth is free of charge. And this even includes all of the teaching that Rob does on a weekly basis to pastors in India and around the world. We don't have any supporters that get special behind the scenes access. But we can only do this with the generous support that comes from those of you who can afford to give. 
So if you would prayerfully consider supporting us with anything from $5 a month or more, we will continue to work hard to challenge the church to be the church. To give, go to DeterminedTruth.com and click on the Give tab or follow the link in the show notes. When we mentioned earlier the, uh, defining Asia Minor in that term and and how, it, you know, even when we read that's something as Bible teachers, we always have to do when we're teaching our congregations uh, that when the term Asia or Asia Minor is listed in the Bible, it's not referring to the Far East in today's world, right? So this is the Roman world. So when we look at the average person, the average Roman citizen, or just the average person living in uh, the Roman state, what does it look like for them? Um, what would it have, you know, generally and then what would it have looked like for christians living in these cities that you know christianity is only a few decades old uh, at this point uh, what, what does life look like well when the romans came in they were very pragmatic in terms of administration because uh asia western uh modern western turkey had a very efficient governance system uh, during the hellenistic period and so the romans simply allowed these greek cities that continue to function uh with their uh, their uh, council, uh, their uh, ecclesia, and their uh, boule. Uh, and uh, so, uh, and then they imposed a, a, a structure over the top of that with a provincial administration with a governor that they sent out. And so the majority of the, of the residents in uh, province of Asia are going to be what we call Greeks, uh, Greek speaking, uh, with, with some Roman citizens that come in, particularly Roman businessmen, so who are coming into these cities and uh, and then being involved uh, with the locals, uh, fostering trade and sending goods and services back to uh, Rome. So this would really be the ongoing uh, governmental structure that you would see in all of these cities. How many Christians, by the way, lived in each of these cities approximately? Were, were the churches fairly small, as we might suspect, or were they were, any idea that we have? This whole area of of population estimates is really a, a difficult one. Uh, okay. you, know, you hear population estimates, for example, of Ephesus, two hundred fifty thousand or two hundred thousand for Pergamum. Uh, the sources I'm reading now saying these populations are way too high. I was mm -hmm. uh, just reviewing these uh, for another project here today. And uh, by taking the area of the cities and then projecting that, you know, with modern de demographic studies uh, related to population density, uh, they're saying, for example, Ephesus may not have more than uh, uh, 100,000 people. Oh, interesting. And, and going all the way down to uh, a city like Philadelphia uh, probably had no more than 10,000. Oh. And so uh, as a result of that, I think the size of the Christian house churches then uh, would be... Uh, you know, commensurate with with the size of the city, but uh, in the house churches, if they're meeting in uh, a villa uh, type uh, uh, peristyle house, can hold no more than thirty or forty people. Right. And so, if you've got a couple of house churches, you, you know, in some of these cities, you're going to easily have less than a, a hundred people, maybe even less than fifty people in the smaller cities. Interesting. Now, it's very clear from the seven messages and. I think the seven messages of any I will discuss in future episodes have a very significant and strategic role with regard to the rest of the book of Revelation. They're not to be isolated from the rest of the, the rest of the book of Revelation, but it's very clear that there's something going on. And obviously the churches are all different. Some of the churches, things are going on and they're going, it's going all right, but they're suffering persecution because they're being faithful. Some of the churches, they're 
uh, not doing well and they're giving in. And some of the churches are just being tempted to give in. What is it that the pressure to give in consists of? What's going on in the culture? What is John writing to them about trying to get them to encourage them to, hey, do this instead of that? You know what I'm saying by that? Yeah, if you kind of break down, you know, like the, uh, the the spiritual look of what these churches are. I mean, some of them have pressures from outside. Others are dealing with pressures on the inside. Some are suffering, some are not. So it's kind of really a mixed bag uh, that we see of their spiritual condition there. Some of the specifics in each of the prophetic messages is applicable to the church. And I think some of it's to mm. all of them that are facing right. similar situations. Okay. And so it's trying to discern then uh, which is which, I think, interpret in uh, as we interpret these letters is important. Okay. So can you speak specifically then, are, are there some specifics like the Roman imperial cult? A lot of commentators and, and authors will speak, hey, the Roman imperial cult was a big issue and it was threatening the churches. And if they compromise with the Roman imperial cult, they can partake in the trade guilds and things of that nature. Can you start speaking a little bit more about that kind of a context for us? So after uh, uh, Octavian defeats Anthony and Cleopatra at Actium in 31, and then uh, become BC now, and then uh, becomes uh, Augustus and begins the the called the Principate or the Roman Empire in in 27, uh, we see very early uh, these cities uh, in or in the east that are used to paying homage to a, a living person as a god. For example, Alexander kind of brings this whole uh, concept of uh, the divine man, you know, into the, the Greek East. In 29 BC, uh, the provinces of uh, Asia and Bithynia petitioned the Roman Senate to build imperial cult temples in the provinces. And so uh, in Pergamum, uh, the first temple was built in Asia, and in uh, Nicomedia, the first one in, in Bithynia. Now, in the cities of Ephesus and Nicaea, they built sanctuaries, uh, not to worship the emperor, but for the divine uh, Divus Julius and the Aroma, the patron goddess of the city, who is the lady we see seated on seven hills you know, later on in, in uh, Revelation. And so these now become the basis for the imperial cult with the elites uh, living in these provinces, the leading Greeks and some of the Romans then uh, worshiping uh, at the temple. Uh, We see the second temple being built in Smyrna in 8026. And so uh, this became very much entrenched as as part of the uh, the religious ethos then in the the province of Asia. Uh, Some of the smaller cities then would have uh, uh, sanctuaries or special imperial rooms that they would dedicate in the civic centers. And so this imperial worship then became uh, pervasive throughout the province. Mm. And what was the consequence for not participating in that for the local Christians? Couldn't you speak a little bit to like, was this a situation that like once a month they're confronted with some, with the situation or they're confronted with this on a daily basis or something of that nature? And then what would be the consequences for not participating in this? Uh, and maybe even what does participation in this look like? Uh, the most public display of this is the uh, we see statues of the emperor em- everywhere. Okay. And uh, so the what, what we see, the statues of the beast, you know, are mentioned later on in Revelation, you know, sometimes it's translated image of the beast. It's really the, the statues there. And they would be uh, displayed publicly. They would be in temples. And uh, there would be a constant reminder who is Lord, mm-hmm. you know, of the empire as people wa- walked around. Now, in some places, they actually had to uh, take uh, oaths 
We don't have any evidence, particularly of that in the province of Asia, well, especially for elite people. You know, if you're a believer and you, you, you're a successful business person or you're a, a, a citizen of one of these cities, there'd be an expectation then that you would participate then in, in offering incense and sacrifices to the emperor. Uh, and so there'd be a tremendous peer pressure uh, uh, to do that, to accommodate uh, in that way. For the poor people, I, I'm not sure how okay. much the pressure would be for those. Uh, at this stage, I think it uh, become increases later on, mm. but uh, probably not in these early years so much for slaves and, and uh, lower class people. Okay. Well, when we go back to the third message, the uh, uh, Church of uh, Pergamum, this there's an interesting phrase in here because it, there's an identification that says, you know, I know where you dwell, you know, the church in Pergamum, it's where Satan's throne is. You're and reading it, from it, Revelation 2, verse 13, right? It, yes, yes, very good. Yeah. Okay. Uh, to, yeah. So this whole this whole message is chapter 2, verse 12 through 17. And so it's it's this place where Satan's throne is, where Satan dwells, but this is also the place where the church in Pergamum dwells. This is really strange. And I think this is the only time in the messages where Satan is mentioned. Do we, do we even see Satan mentioned again until even in the whole uh, book until chapter 12 at this point? Um, yeah, no, we have an introduction to him here yeah, yeah. Uh, in this chapter, and then he appears later on. So it's uh, a preview uh, yes. of him that uh, as, as he uh, makes his, comes out of the stage here briefly. Uh, there's been a number of suggestions on how to interpret this. Uh, one of them has to do with the uh, uh, largest altar in the ancient world, the altar of Zeus that stood on the Acropolis. And uh, there's not much to see as you go to Pergamum today there. The, uh, the stones that uh, we were formerly on the altar are now in Berlin. There's a famous uh, yeah. Pergamum museum uh, there that uh, has the restored altar. The second identification for this place where Satan dwells is the Asclepian. So this mm. is the healing center of Asclepius, uh, the uh, Greek god of healing that was there. And of course, there was a bit of competition. Who is the healer? Is it Jesus? Mm -hmm. The healer is Asclepius that was there. Uh, some have identified it with the, the actual hill that the Pergamum sits on. It's a dramatic summit uh, rising a, a, a thousand feet up above the, the plain below. Uh, and really catches your attention when you drive into the, the, the modern village of Bergama today. My personal uh, view of the identification has to do with this imperial cult temple uh, that was uh, built here in 29 BC. Uh, when we go there today, that temple does not exist. The modern city is overbuilt, the ancient Roman city. Mm. Uh, the Greek city was built up on the Acropolis and the Romans built down below. And so that city is virtually gone. So it's somewhere down uh, in the lower city. We do have an imperial cult temple, the fourth one built in, in uh, Asia, the Trajan Temple from the second century, built on the uh, Acropolis, but that's the only Roman structure that uh, is up there. And so the, the fact that Antipas, who's the only named uh, mm -hmm. martyr that we have in Revelation, mm -hmm. is mentioned here, mm -hmm. uh, it's only the Roman governor who can give the order for his death. Mm -hmm. And so the concentration of, of Roman imperial power there uh, with the governor and the imperial cult uh, is, is what I think is the, the right uh, identification for this seed of Satan, because I think this is really the true uh, opponent uh, that the yeah. early Christians are dealing with here. Right. Yeah. Very, very important. Very important. John. Right, let me read a couple of verses here from this, a couple of the different letters of uh, Revelation chapter two, 
uh, verse 6, the letter to the church in Ephesus says, uh, this you do have that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And then down in the letter to Pergamum that Benny was referring to in verses 14 and 15, it says, I have a few things against you. You have there some who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. And then verse 15, you also have some who in the same way hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So can you help us understand what's going on here? Who are, what does he mean by the teachings of Balaam? And uh, who are the Nicolaitans? And are they the same? And is this related to the Jezebel, maybe, which we can discuss in a minute if you want, in the letter to Thyatira? Yeah, so one of the interesting things John does, he kind of drops things in there yeah. without explanation. Right, he right, does right. this here, knowing that he's going to pick this up later, okay. you know, and you're going to get a fuller explanation. So, you know, we don't really know who the founder of this Nicolaitan group is. There's been some discussion with some Nicholas uh, yeah. of, of, of being a background there. We don't have to go into that. Uh, and of course, uh, the Old Testament prophet Balaam uh, is mentioned there and he had the notorious story of, uh, how he suborned Israel, you know, in in, in numbers there and uh, caused them to fall into sin. So we have these two, you know, uh, Old Testament figures, Balaam and Jezebel, you know, right. who are uh, notorious false prophets uh, you know, who lead Israel into idolatry and and uh, away from uh, into apostasy. So both are mentioned here. And so, you know, the, the whole issue of sexual immorality, uh, eating, uh, polluted food or non-kosher food here, uh, I think is uh, an issue of accommodation and compromise that characterizes all three of these groups. I mean, they may have their own nuances of differences of interpretation. I think the bottom line is, is, is this is what they were, uh, you know, advocating is that, you know, you can have one foot in Christianity and continue to have one foot, you know, in, in pagan or in culture uh, there, and this is what they're advocating. And I think this is why John is so adamant, you know, in, in opposing those, and especially Jezebel there. Uh, she apparently had been warned before to, to cease and desist from her false teaching, failed to do that. And we have then this very stern warning, you know, if you don't do this, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, you know, basically kill you. I'm gonna put mm -hmm. you on a this is a, the letter of the church in Thyatira. Supper. Yeah. yeah, as yeah. we move on. So and I think that they both of those references to the Nicolaitans and the, and the Balaamites leading up to the, the fuller uh, explanation of this with, with Jezebel and Theatira. It seems that John in the book of Revelation, specific, almost he's explicit, like you cannot eat food sacrificed to idols. You cannot commit acts of sexual immorality. But this seems to kind of go against what Paul says in 1 Corinthians, mm -hmm. where Paul says, hey, it's okay depending on whether your conscience and what, you know, don't cause a brother to assemble. Is there, is there a difference in context between the two or, or something happening to help us understand that? I think John and Paul would be in agreement about this. And okay. one thing I, you know, I frequently will uh, mention uh, about uh, these uh, messages and we've been talking about, uh, you know, these Old Testament figures of Balaam and Jezebel. John presumes that you know the Old Testament. Yeah. You know, I think this is one of the big issues with readers of Revelation today. Many Christians have never read the Old Testament. I mean, I've Sunday school class, I, I show of hands. How many of you have read the Old Testament? I, I, mean, I got my New Testament in Psalms. That's good enough, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. So he drops these names, events like the Exodus, many of these things that, that yeah, are happening yeah. in Revelation that are going on with no backstory. You know, right, he yeah. presumes you know the backstory on these. And when you don't do it, you know, you're going to get yourself in 
trouble with interpretation. And uh, so, you know, this becomes a, a big issue uh, related to that. So Paul and, and John, I think, are in agreement about this because Paul is basically talking about eating this meat uh, in, in a private home, in a private setting. And so, I mean, Jews would never eat meat that's uh, sold in a public meat market. Now, this would be the agora. Mm -hmm. uh, so they would uh, have their own uh, uh, butchers producing kosher meat. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, the whole thing with the, the animal would be sacrificed on a, a pagan altar in the same way that the priests would get, uh, the Levites would get a portion of a carcass when the animals are sacrificed at the temple. This would happen in pagan temples as well, too. And then the rest of the carcass after this, uh, the uh, parts would be burned on, on the altar, then would be taken down the meat market and sold. So that's where would you get your hamburger in the ancient world, you know, uh, here in the public meat market. And so for Paul, he's basically saying you can go uh, uh, and, and buy this, consume it privately. If you have a conscience problem with this, you probably should uh, not eat it. And the, this is his teaching. But he said to go into the pagan temples to the dining rooms at these places and eat it. You know, that's where the problem comes in, you know. And I think John is saying the same thing. And I think this is je what Jezebel is advocating here is that if you're a, a member of a trade guild, for example, I mean, this is your union card. And so the trade guilds would have their meetings in the dining rooms in these pagan temples. And so as you as a Christian, can you go out into these public spaces, eat this uh, meat, uh, you know, under the auspices of, of, of this the god or goddesses? And I think this is where John is saying you can't do that. Uh, uh, you need to withdraw from these public things. And of course, this is where you get this uh, branding of Christians as being antisocial mm. uh, because they're now withdrawing from the public sphere in these these cities and these institutions. Mm. Vinny and I are antisocial, but that's just for another reason. So we won't, <laughs> yeah. we, we won't get into that. People don't want to eat with us. With the no. other, but we, we try to sit down and they all just leave. So. Yeah. <laughs> we hope you're enjoying the podcast. And we want to remind you that everything we do at Determined Truth podcast, Rob's blog, and our YouTube channel is available on the Determined Truth app. Directions on how to download the app is available in the show notes and on the DeterminedTruth.com website. Just click on the app tab. In your commentary, you talk a lot about how sports, and I know the uh, uh, Vima that you recommended to me a while ago, who has a good resource on Revelation 2 and 3 and the 7 letters, also talks about how sports is a significant part in the cities of Asia. So that's, you're, you're speaking our love language to Vinny and myself. So can you Give us a little bit of a context of how sports was significant and uh, how it related to these seven churches, and maybe does it doesn't have an impact? Is it the victor's wreath? Is that what's going on in, uh, in these messages? Yeah, when you visit each of these cities today, you're going to see stadiums. And uh, the cities built these, and they had these games that uh, uh, went around uh, to all the cities, uh, rotated among them mm -hmm. uh, to have uh, the various types of events, uh, whether it be running or wrestling and, and whatnot. Uh, you see various monuments here with the superstars of antiquity, uh, with the wreaths, uh, and inside the wreaths it tells where they won this uh, mm -hmm. at the Isthmian Games or in the Corinthian, you know, Corinthian Games or the Olympic Games. And so uh, there was uh, they really loved their athletes in the ancient world too. They would get uh, all kinds of rewards. Paul talks about this in First Corinthians, you know, as he compares the Christian. Mm -hmm life to uh, the the stadium and, and the races that are going on there and talking about that you know they're they're running for a perishable 
crown. Now, I like to translate this as wreath, because when we mm -hmm. think about crown, if you're just yeah. watching the coronation of, of the new king <laughs> in England, yeah, they're putting this massive metal thing on top of his head, you know. Uh, that's not what uh, the the image here in the Revelation are talking about, a wreath of oak, oak leaves or olive uh, that is perishable. And uh, so the victors then would be crowned with this Stephanos or wreath to uh, signify uh, that they're the victors. And so uh, I, I like that translation of, of, of uh, be victorious uh, rather than uh, conquer, which is more of a military image. Uh, we have, uh, obviously, battles that are going on uh, later in Revelation. So there is uh, military imagery there. But I think mm -hmm. in these uh, opening letters, the, the imagery of, of being triumphant um, and receiving the, these wreaths is, uh, is one that uh, is very relatable to the interest in athletics and the stadiums that would have been in these cities. So I am being spiritual when I watch SportsCenter at night then. <laughs> That's good. And and Vinny, by the way, you would really relate to these stadiums because they're empty. I I was waiting for something like that. <laughs> his, his, his hey, the only thing I stay up for. I, I'm sorry, he's a Los Angeles. Uh, he's, he's an Oakland A's fan and used to be yeah. an Oakland Raider fan. He still is, but they no longer live uh, and they no longer play in Oakland. So empty stadiums are kind of his. Yeah. His love language. Well, I still uh, am a big NFL fan, and so when the Super Bowl comes on here in Turkey, it comes on at two thirty in the morning. So oh, I'm yeah. up all night to wow. watch that every yeah, year. Yeah. So Are that's you a my Seattle one fan? sacrifice of sleep every uh, year. Who do you root for? You know, I I don't really have a team. I just oh, okay. like to watch good good football. So there you go. yeah, uh, okay. So you don't watch the Raiders, okay? <laughs> <laughs> Kick uh, a man while he's down. You know? I, I, I will I overcome this. I put, I put you on the ground. I might as well just take advantage of you while you're <laughs> That's around. right. That's right. <laughs> hey, uh, Mark, I have a question for you. Uh, Rob and I, in the in past shows, we've talked about you know going over and visiting Jerusalem. I, I think we, I want to say we talked about that when we had Bruce, Bruce Fisk on. Uh, but yeah, we, we talked about like the experience of what it's like to be over and experience that. And I know many churches will do pilgrimage trips to, to Jerusalem and whatnot, but you actually lead trips to, you know, around Turkey and you visit these sites. I know this is something that my church actually did a couple of years ago. They did a, a Turkey Greece trip and they, they saw mm -hmm. the, um, the seven uh, sites of the seven churches. What is it? What are some of the big takeaways that uh, you've seen that folks get when they, uh, when you lead these tours and these kind of experiences? Cause this might not be the the original bucket list biblical trip. Usually it is, I need to go to Jerusalem. Well, why would someone want to go to Turkey? Well, I mean, you know, you're right. Israel is the first place they go. And after they've been there maybe once or twice, <laughs> they mm -hmm. say, where else can I visit? And they start looking around and they say, well, wow, Turkey's got a lot of biblical sites too. So uh, people come here and they do Paul's journeys. You know, that's one of them. And then the second big one, as you mentioned, is uh, the visit to the seven churches. So I think one of the first things people get is uh, these are historical places. I mean, they're, there's not they're not some myth. You know, they're they're actual uh, ancient cities that we can go and visit today. You know, and so uh, I think you know they see the, uh, the whole revelation being grounded first of all in history, and uh, and it can be explained. You know, in terms of the Greco-Roman world in the, the first century when it's written. I think the second thing people gain is just the distances, you know, between mm -hmm. the cities and the relationship uh, with one another. We go around each site, we tend to read the prophetic message on site. And so people, you know, get a, a I think, a, a real spiritual sense of, of place, 
you know, as they're connecting that particular message with uh, the place that they're standing in and looking around uh, and seeing the same things. Uh, the hills, the topography hasn't changed uh, in some of the restoration, like at Laodicea, some of the structures they're seeing, you know, some of the world then of the first audience uh, of Revelation. And so I, I kind of like it in, from going from uh, a 2D to something, a 3D reading of scripture now, you mm -hmm. know, it's, it's just not, uh, you know, the, the words on a page, but uh, you've been there, you can visualize right. what the Atira looks like, you can, you know, what uh, walking down the main street and Laodicea is like. And so mm -hmm. I think it really transforms the reading of scripture for people when they make a trip like this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for me, it was always, it's not, it's no longer a map in the back of my Bible. Now it's a vivid image because I've I've seen it. I know I know where it's at. I have an idea where the land, not only the landscape, but its location to other places or whatever. And oh, okay, he's here. Jesus on the Mount of Olives, speaking back to and things like that. So yeah, very very good. Yeah, so, it really does. Hey hey Mark, so um, anything that we missed that we left out that you want to kind of address or you know some some hey this is really significant for understanding the seven letter seven messages or something like that at all. Well, we can talk about Jewish communities just a okay. bit, I think. Good. Yeah. Because yeah. I know you so. worked on that. I, well, that's fine. That's, no, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. So very important to the background of, of uh, Revelation is the Jewish communities we have in all of these cities. I mean, there's a large Jew Jewish population, and they really become the first uh, followers of Jesus in all mm. of these cities. I mean, when Paul comes into Ephesus you know, and spends three years there, uh, he goes uh, into the synagogue first. And uh, they become uh, some of the first Jesus followers in the cities. And I, I honestly think these are some of the, the people who are actually interpreting uh, the revelation to the others because they mm -hmm. understand who Balaam is and they understand who Jezebel is. And for the pagans who have no background in, in Jewish scriptures at all, uh, how do they learn? So they learn, I think, from their Jewish brothers and sisters mm -hmm. you know, uh, there in, in these uh, congregations. And uh, I think, you know, we have this phenomenon uh, in two of the letters in Smyrna and Philadelphia, where this mention of this uh, uh, challenging phrase, synagogue of Satan, is mentioned uh, there. Uh, and to me, it seems like this phenomenon called the parting of the ways is going on uh, in these uh, mm -hmm. communities here. I know some people don't believe that there was a parting of the ways, but I think the very moment that Paul sets foot into a synagogue and begins preaching Jesus as Messiah, there's a separation that begins in these uh, uh, Jewish communities in these cities. And we see this uh, everywhere that Paul goes. Uh, uh, some believe, but then eventually they're forced to leave the, uh, the synagogue. And it's important to re realize that a synagogue in the ancient world is more than just a worship center. Right. Uh, it, it, it's a, a community center, really, right. where there, there's teaching that's going on. Uh, there are uh, hostels, food kitchens. So they're, they're a full service sort of place. Uh, there are guest houses for travelers that Paul would be staying at these as well. And so I think up to a certain point, the Jewish communities were allowing uh, Jewish followers of Jesus to continue to, to participate in the community. And then at some point, they just, uh, especially here in the latter half of the uh, first century, when now Christianity begins to be persecuted, you know, you have the big persecution by Nero after the fire in Rome, uh, suddenly they become persona non grata, you know, in, in these cities. And, and uh, because Christ, uh, excuse me, because Judaism is a legal religion, suddenly they have these potential criminal Christians, you know, mm. attending you know, your uh, synagogue. 
uh, could be looked on by the authorities. Uh, and, you mean criminal Christians because life. because the Jews look at them and go, "Hey, you guys aren't true, true, truly Jewish," and therefore they therefore they don't get the exemptions from the Roman law that we Jews do. Is that is that what you're referring to? Right, because the, yeah. the Christians, you know, are not uh, don't have a legal religion. That, you know, right. for a period right. of time, they're kind of viewed as under the umbrella of Judaism, exactly. and exactly. and then with the Neronic or the persecution under Nero, suddenly they're seen in their own right as a non-legal superstition that the Romans begin to try and stamp out. So I think this is part of the tension that we have going on here in these two communities. And for you, Mark, I know you you hold to an early date for the authorship of the book of Revelation. You, you dated between you know, 68, 69, 70, before the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. And so that the parting of the ways between the parting of the ways, by the way, is a reference to the division between the Judaism and Christianity becoming two distinct things. So for right. you, that that certainly hasn't happened yet. And the, the persecution of Nero is significant. And so if the Jews are saying, hey, you Christians are not part of us to the Roman authorities, then that's that's the cause of, of intensifying any persecution against the Christians. Yeah, I just see this as part of what's going on here in, in the late 60s okay. with uh, with the Jewish revolt that's taking place, the uh, upheaval mm. in the Roman Empire, the year of the four emperors in 69. So uh, there's problem insurrections going on in the province of Asia as well. So it's a, just a real breakdown of, of law and order that, that really uh, looks like uh, the rhetorical situation we have in Revelation. Right, right. And the revolt you're speaking of, by the way, is in Jerusalem, which happened between 66 and 70, but really escalated at the end at the end of those years there. So oh, very good. Yeah, and we have the un unrest actually that we in, yeah. in Asia, in Sardis, and things as well. Okay. And then we have the rise then uh, of of this Nero uh, uh, imitator of coming back to life that happens in '69. So this mm. phenomenon of what we call Nero redivivus begins to take place at this time too. So okay. a lot of the imagery you see later in Revelation is beginning to unfold in this period. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. And what you're referring to there, just again, what we Vinny and I can discuss this later episodes as well, though, is Nero commits suicide in 68, but some legends began circulating about he's not really dead. And there are a couple of imposters over the next couple of decades. Uh, and, the, and the earliest of those was, was during this time that, that you placed the book of Revelation. So, yeah. It's like Elvis sightings. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, he was so terrible, they couldn't believe he was actually dead, you know, yeah. so, kind of like what happened with Hitler and some of these other despots. Yeah, yeah, okay, very good. Interesting. All right, hey, how can our listeners kind of keep up with your work, follow what's going on, be aware of like the ministry that you have, the, the tours that you lead there, receive maybe your newsletter if they're interested in keeping in touch with the work that you're doing, you and Dindy are doing, um, or if they want to travel to Turkey, uh, how can they find out about the, your trips? Of course, if if 10 people sign up, then Vinny and I get to go along for free. Just, <laughs> just want to let everybody know that. So, And we'll post all this in the show notes. So if you kind of give us a, a verbal thing here, then and we'll, we'll put some links in the show notes. Hey, that's a good invite. You guys can come and lead a seven churches tour over here. No, we're going to follow you, together. Mark. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you're, you're leading. I have to tell you this. You're leading. Yeah, thanks for the, uh, the invite to do this because um, I uh, put all my uh, papers that I've written and published up on academia.edu, uh, academia.edu. So a number of those are things on Revelation. Uh, uh, both of us have uh, articles coming out in a, a yes. new uh, volume on Revelation called John Among the Critics. So uh, we encourage people to pick up a copy of that later this year when that's available. 
Yeah, that should have been out like uh, a year ago, right? I mean, like, it should have been out. Yeah, it, it's, it's due yeah. any day now. So, yeah. What was your chapter in that book on, Mark? Uh, John and government. And uh, I just uh, was looking years again on anti-Semitism and revelation. It's just an excellent chapter. Thank I you. highly recommend it. So Thank you. Uh, I think we uh, think alike on a lot of these issues. So <laughs> very man. simpatico. Uh, yeah, I have a very interesting or easy email address, just Mark Wilson spelled out, M-A-R-K-W-I-L-S-O-N at sevenchurches.org. So spell <laughs> it out, S-E-V-E-N-C-H-U-R-E-S. Org. Mark Wilson at sevenchurches.org. People can get in touch with me, uh, put them on a newsletter uh, list like uh, you, you're, you're on that, Rob. Yes, yeah, I and, love reading uh, it every month. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> yeah, we try not to overwhelm people with that and give updates on what's happening with us in Turkey and usually uh, uh, send along a, an article I've published. Uh, regarding tours, I work with an agency based in Izmir called Tutku Tours, T-U-T-K-U. Tutku Tours, and the website is uh, just tutkutours.com, and uh, all my tours are listed there, or they can just, people write me at uh, my email address, and I'm happy to uh, answer that and uh, give them uh, information on my next tours. Excellent, excellent, excellent. All right. Hey, Mark, what a privilege, what a pleasure, and I know uh, we'll be together, it'll be like six months when we'll probably meet up in San Antonio this year, so I look forward to, to hanging out with you then. Thank Absolutely. you so much for your time and your friendship, as well as uh, uh, I don't know what Vinny was thinking, but I'm I don't think you were looking at any notes. I think Mark was simply just all the historical data, the the contextual data, the mm -hmm. geographical. It was just coming right from him. Like I felt like we're standing off in the, the ancient ruins of Ephesus, and you're just speaking to a tour group without any notes. Uh, so it's just a wealth of knowledge and just a, a pleasure uh, listening to you. And, and thank you for contributing. No, my pleasure. Thanks for the invitation to join you. And thanks for all you guys do. You know, you're doing a great job. Thank you very much. Thanks. And we can't I recommend enough uh, yeah. your, just your little commentaries. You could download it on Amazon Kindle for less than 10 bucks, I think, on uh, through yeah. the Zondervan Illustrated Bible background commentaries. A great background information if you know and it's highly accessible you could be a layperson. you don't have to be a scholar at all to understand what's happening and mark put, presents this great information in a very digestible way so uh, yeah. yeah thank you just for the contribution that you make to, to helping us uh, understand this book better yeah and i'll, yeah, I'll put a pleasure. link to that in the show notes also so yeah yeah, yeah. hey thanks again mark take care yep see mark okay. and see everyone yeah. else next time yeah. god bless come and see me in turkey sometime yeah yeah <laughs> I want to thank you for joining us on today's podcast, and we would love for you to share the work of Determined Truth with others. Please follow this podcast and give a review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Your review will go a long way towards helping others find this podcast. Then share it with others so that we can get the word of the gospel of the kingdom to more people.